our pastor and his wife. I trust that you are praying for them while they're away. I understand that they were a bit under the weather um, for a while, but I appreciate your prayers holding them up. And um, they're, they're doing God's work on behalf of this church. Really, they are, their ministry overseas and is an extension of your ministry, of the ministry of this church. So continue to hold them up in prayer. And uh, even when they're back, you can pray for them too. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Um, I love and respect our pastor and his wife and thank him for the opportunity and trust to fill this pulpit in their absence. And I think I speak not only for myself, but for all the, the ministerial staff amongst us. So, amen. Looking to the word of the Lord here this morning, 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 18. We're going to read this verse and then quickly a verse in the book of John. This is from the New Century Version, a more modern translation. And it says that Elisha said, take the arrows. So Jehoash took them. Then Elisha said to him, strike the ground. So Jehoash struck the ground three times and stopped. Last Sunday evening, I, I shared just a bit of this passage and uh, this story within a larger uh, message that we shared entitled Red Light, Green Light, and um, Jehoash stopping when he'd received the word to strike the ground. And that has returned to me this week, and so I'd like to dig into this a little more deeply in looking at this interaction in 2 Kings 13 between Elisha and Jehoash. Before we do so, read with me, if you would, John chapter 8 and verse 31 in the King James Version. John 8, 31 reads that, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him. Everybody said believed. believed. They believed on Him. And Jesus said, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed. 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 Amen. And so as we pray this morning, I'd like to title this before you, Living Below Your Calling. Living Below Your Calling. Pray with me if you would, pray for me if you would. God, I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful atmosphere of praise and worship. Lord, and it's in just such an atmosphere that our faith builds, God, to receive your word now as it goes forth. I pray, God, that it be mixed with that faith, that it might profit much and accomplish that to which you desire and ascend it. God, in Jesus' name, Lord, loose my mouth to share your word as you intended this morning. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And the church said amen. 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 amen, so be it. You may be seated. Living below your calling. Now there's a lot that could be said about your calling. And allow me to say that I believe by scripture and so many instances throughout scripture that God has a specific plan and purpose and calling for each and every individual. It may seem that we don't know what's going on or that God doesn't have any sort of plan or purpose at times. But make no mistake, if we believe that God is personal, that God is individual, that God does things intentionally and that He has a plan from the, before the foundation of the world, then we have to believe 
that he is purposeful and that purpose extends to us as individuals. And so for the, for the sake of the message this morning, if you would allow me to define calling as the purpose which with God intends you to impact others and draw you to himself. Your calling is the purpose with which God intends you to impact others and to draw you to himself. Because we've been given those two great commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. And so God's calling and purpose for your life, whatever it may be, it may never involve being behind a musical instrument or playing a musical instrument from behind a pulpit. It may be teaching Bible studies over a kitchen table. It may be being the best accountant or lawyer that you can be and impacting your workplace for the good. Whatever it may be, it's going to involve loving God and loving others. And so your purpose and calling, that which God intends you to impact others and draw you to himself. And so God had a purpose for King Jehoash in 2 Kings chapter 13. He had a calling for him. Yes, he was, was the king of Israel, but there was more than that. God was going to use that position for his purpose, or he desired to at least. And so we're going to back it up a few verses here in 2 Kings chapter 13 and begin reading at verse 14. For 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 14 says, At this time Elisha became sick. He'd lived a long, full life and he was now ill. Before he died, Jehoash, king of Israel. Now let me interrupt and say if you're following along in your Bible, uh, more modern translations will render it as the new century does. Jehoash, but the King James Version and some of the uh, uh, translations that more closely align themselves with the KJV will say Joash. So that is not to be confused with Joash, the good king of Judah, right? And he is in 2 Kings chapter 11, a couple chapters earlier that he, made, he brought about all these reforms and everything. This is not the same guy. This is Jehoash, the not-so-good king of Israel. All right, so if you're ever reading in your Bible and, and come across this. So, uh, before Elisha died, Jehoash, king of Israel, went to Elisha and cried for him. Now, Jehoash, as I said, was not a great guy. He was not a good king. Israel didn't really have any good kings. And so he wasn't particularly tight with Elisha, and yet, nonetheless, he saw him as a man of God, as more or less a pastoral-type figure to the nation of Israel and to himself personally. So as he is upon his deathbed, he comes to him and he weeps for him. Jehoash said, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, and if this might sound familiar, this is the same phrase that Elisha had used when Elijah was caught up in the chariot of fire. Now Elisha said these same words, and it was a, a euphemism for the time that meant that a single man in Israel was worth all of the chariots and all of the horsemen in the nation. And that's how much honor and esteem that they had. And so that's what this euphemism meant. Continuing to read in verse 15, 
Elisha said to Jehoash, take a bow and arrows. So Jehoash, he took bow and arrows. Then Elisha said to him, put your hand on the bow. So Jehoash put his hand on the bow. Then Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Now, I think there's a whole message right here. <laughs> but allow me for the sake of time and, and the message that I have been given to share with you this morning to simply say, thank God for those people in our lives who put their hands on our hands to guide us, to affirm us in those moments that we're distraught. Jehoash was upset and everything, and yet Elisha, this man of God, who knew Jehoash probably wasn't, well, he certainly wasn't living how he should be. He had this moment, this opportunity, where he felt the touch of the man of God, a person that had come alongside him. And I'm, I can think of a handful of individuals whose fingerprints are on my life, who have put their hands on my hands over the years, and I am so thankful for those. And perhaps you can think of those individuals as well. Never take them for granted in your life. Amen. Amen. Verse 17, Elisha said, open the east window. So Jehoash opened the window. Then Elisha said, shoot. And Jehoash shot. Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory over Aram. And this was Israel's enemy to the north. You will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you destroy them. Elisha then said, take the arrows. So Jehoash took them. Then Elisha said to him, strike the ground. So Jehoash struck the ground once, twice, three times and stopped, and stopped. And how much would turn on that one word in scripture? He stopped. And having read this passage over the, the years, I thought for many years that maybe Jehoash just didn't get it. Maybe there was something lost in translation when he shot the arrow out the window and Elisha said, this is the arrow of the Lord right? Your victory over the Arameans. And maybe from that moment to striking that Jehoash somehow got his wires crossed, that this was not what was symbolized. But I, I now believe that Jehoash knew exactly what the arrows represented. And he simply thought that three times would do. He thought that once, twice, three times, despite having more arrows in his hand, that three times would be enough. I believe in that moment that perhaps Jehoash overestimated himself. He overestimated his abilities as king, or perhaps his talents as a strategist or tactician on the battlefield, as a warrior. But perhaps more so, I believe he undervalued the word of the prophet, the man of God. 
Perhaps in that moment as he's, he's striking the ground with one arrow after another, maybe Jehoash just reasoned that, wait a minute, entire battles are going to be determined by me striking the ground with these pointed sticks. You, you mean that thousands of men's lives are at stake by me just smiting these arrows on the ground. Th that was a bit of a leap, right? That, that was some, an act of, no matter how simple, it was still an act of faith that you had to believe that what the prophet said was true. It does seem to be a little much. How could something so inconsequential as throwing these, these arrows on the floor have such an impact on the destiny of a nation? Something so small, so inconsequential. Similarly, we might reason, well, what difference will the few dollars that I put in the offering make? What really, you know, if I leave a, a church card with a tip at a restaurant, that's really going to change somebody's life? I mean, a, a few minutes of Bible reading each day is going to change the way I think and live and act and little things that could have really big impacts. And we think, well, they're so small. I don't really need to do that, right? Living below our calling. But when we reason so, we overestimate our ability to control the outcome of our decisions, however small those decisions may be. And we underestimate God's almighty orchestration and how God incredibly, masterfully, so mind-blowingly brings circumstances and events to pass, right? God won't go against your will, but he can bring circumstances to make you willing. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, God can tighten the vice a little bit. Yeah. We underestimate God's orchestration. We still make our decisions and God won't violate our free will, but make no mistake, the end game, the outcome always belongs to Him. It always does. And we cannot overestimate our ability to control that outcome when it's in God's hands. And so I think this is what Jehoash was laboring under. And so after he struck the ground once and twice and a third time, he just said, enough is enough. This is silly. This is too small, too inconsequential to make a big impact. But verse 19, we read that the man of God was angry. The KJV renders it wroth, like he was upset. He was livid with Jehoash. He just flipped out. And to, to truly understand the difference between these two men, between Elisha and Jehoash, we have to understand why would, Jeho why would Elisha go so ballistic? I mean, it's just a few sticks, right? 
Think from the very first time that we read about Elisha. Elijah has been given instructions by God to find Elisha and anoint him as his successor. And so he goes and he finds Elisha, and what's he doing? Is he, he's out there at work, right? He's putting his hands into the ground. He, he's trying to, uh, to make out a, a, a living. It says that the Bible says that he was working with oxen. Now, oxen were typically yoked together two at a time. He wasn't just working with one yoke of oxen, or two, or three, or four. The Bible says he was working with 12 yoke of oxen. 12 yoke of oxen. Now, obviously, Elisha, as one person, could not control six pair of oxen, right? But that means that he was working with other people. It likely means that his family was pretty well off, and he did not have to be out there working at all, if you think about it. And yet Elisha was the type of man who said, it, I'm not going to sit by while others do the work. I'm going to get out there and be in the field with them. And that he was overseeing it. It wasn't good enough to say, well, just one yoke of oxen should do the trick. No. Or two yoke, or maybe, no. He saw, and in, that, in his industry, he said, we can scale this. We can provide for our family on a large scale. And he scaled up the operation to include 12 yoke of oxen. 12 yoke of oxen. That, I, I, I misspoke earlier. It's not six pair. That would have been 24 oxen. Incredible. This gives us a glimpse into the type of man that Elisha was. Twelve yoke of oxen. And that same mindset Elisha maintained even after he was called by Elijah. Because when Elijah knew that he would uh, be received by the Lord. Now, I don't know if, if he thought he was going to his death or that Elijah knew he would be caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But he just went from place to place to place on his journey. And at each stop, he tells Elisha, just stay here. This is far enough for you. And Elisha said, oh, no, I'm sticking with you. Right? I am coming. And then he goes to the next stop. And, and Elijah tells him again, this is far enough. And like, no way. You're not getting rid of me that easy. Right? I am on you like glue. And he goes to the next stop. And he says, far enough, Elijah. Like, put on the, no. Right? And even when the, the, the sons of the prophets there at Jericho were, were teasing and persecuting Elisha. Right? Yeah, we know that God's going to take your, you know, you were the, the favorite child, right? You, you were the, oh, they, well, you're not going to have that sort of thing anymore because God's taken Elijah and you're going to be just like one of us. That didn't phase Elisha. He stuck to Elijah. And so the same mindset, in fact, he comes to the point after they had crossed the Jordan that Elijah turns to him and says in 2 Kings chapter 2, and verse 9, 2 Kings 2, 9, says that after they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? And this is the mindset of Elisha. He said, let me have a double share of your spirit. A double share of your spirit. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets ever in the history of the nation of Israel. And Elisha's saying, I want a double portion. 
He's not like, well, if I could have just a fraction, right? If I could just be half as good <laughs> as you, Elijah. I mean, if I'm thinking, wow, you know, I think of the, the pioneers of Pentecost, right? G.A. Mangan or, or Brother Kilgore or, or Fred Kinsey, any of these great, if I could have just half of their spirit, I'd be, whoa, more than, no, that's not what Elisha asked. He said, let me have a double share, a double portion of your spirit. To which Elijah replied in verse 10, you have asked a hard thing. I mean, this was a man that had done miracles, had, had put kings in their place, and he said, whoa, this is hard. You've asked a hard thing, Elisha, but it gives us insight into just what kind of man Elisha was. He said, but if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. If you don't, it won't happen. Well, we know the rest of the story, of course, that Elisha did see Elijah carried up into heaven by that chariot of fire. His mantle dropped and Elisha picked it up, walked to the Jordan and smote it, parted the waters and began his ministry as well. So Elisha, I submit to you this morning, Elisha was the sort of man who could not understand why someone who would not go above and beyond in everything, anything that they did. Because that's what he did. Especially when it came to serving God. And I imagine so many of us, as I've already confessed, would have settled for asking Elijah, well, you know, just if I could do one miracle, cool. You know, I haven't raised anybody from the dead, so that'd be really awesome. You know, that'd be enough. He didn't ask to do more miracles, but he asked for that double portion, that double share of his spirit. And from that flowed a total of 14 miracles. Elisha was the kind of man who had the vision and, and spiritual chutzpah. I guess to use a Jewish term that seems to fit, chutzpah, just to ask for double of what Elijah. And so with this man on his deathbed, still very much that same mindset, and now he's trying to impart to this king, this wayward king, Jehoash, in his presence, these last few moments that he had with him, his hands upon his hands, saying, God's got victory for you, Jehoash, just now strike the ground. And he strikes once, twice, and three times and stops. The prophet just loses it. He is mad. He says, continuing to read there from 2 Kings 13, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Aram until you had completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. He said five or six times. For the sake of the math, three is half of six. He said six times would have been enough. You would have completely destroyed them. They would have never been a thorn in your side or your children's side, your grandchildren's side. You would have completely annihilated them if you'd done it six times. But you only did it three, half of six. As I mentioned last Sunday evening, the, the quiver of a typical foot archer of the time routinely held approximately 12 arrows, which means that 
Jehoash. When, when Elisha said that if you had struck the ground six times, that would have been enough. But he had in his possession 12 arrows and could have struck the ground as many as 12 times, which would have been the double portion. The double portion. Elisha had received that for himself, and he now had the opportunity for this young king to understand and carry forward that same mindset. That double portion. If he continued past the necessary six times and exhausted his supply of likely 12 arrows. Instead, while Elisha received, asked for and received twice as much, Jehoash settled for half of the minimum. Remember, Elisha said that six, five or six times was the minimum and Jehoash settled for half of the minimum. The thing is when Jehoash stopped after what he thought was enough, he did not know just what the minimum was to defeat his enemy. He did not know what the minimum was to overcome in his life. And neither do you. Neither do I. What's the, the minimum degree of attention that I have to pay in church? Just being here is enough, right? I'm going to get brownie points with God just for showing up. How little can I pray each day? How, how little can I tarry in the altar? What, what are the, by the skin of my teeth, Bible reading requirements, right? Give me a, a list so I can check it off. How few people do I need to impact with the gospel and still fulfill the Great Commission? What's the, the razor's edge separation from the world that I can have and and still consider myself holy. These are some powerful questions. And I'm preaching and asking these questions of myself, as well as every one of us this morning. Because I don't know. I don't know the answer. I know that when you start a relationship with someone, it's never a good idea to say, what's the minimum that I have to do to maintain this friendship? <laughs> I didn't marry my wife and say, okay, honey, now, what, what's the least I can do so you don't leave me? <laughs> right? Okay, can I tell you just once a week that I love you? Can I get away with once a month? Do I have to say it every day? Right? We don't do that. We're not looking for the minimums. And we don't know these minimums. We don't know just the, what we can get away with because things like these are the sort of things that I, I mentioned, being a witness and, and uh, being in devotion with God, these things are dependent upon what God directs you to do. 
We have examples in Scripture where people prayed all night. We have examples in Scripture where people prayed just a few seconds and God moved. How can I tell you, you've got to fulfill a quota of 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes of prayer every day? I can't tell you that. I don't know what the minimum is. But you've got to hear from God for yourself, specific to your calling, what God has for you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And it may, may sound like there's, there's no ceiling then. Well, God, I don't know what the minimum is, so I'm just going to where I'm just going to continue to give There's no ceiling to that. And, and we need to be careful because I, I confess to you, I spent much of the first 20 plus years of my life under the misconception that whatever I did was not good enough. It didn't matter how much I read the Bible. It wasn't good enough. There was always more reading that could be done. It didn't matter how much I prayed, there was always more prayer that could be done. It didn't matter how many Bible studies I taught because there was still a world full of lost people that needed to hear the gospel. So we can fall into that trap as well to say, well, there's so much, I can't do it, I'm not gonna do anything. Don't fall victim to that lie of the devil because it comes with condemnation and it erodes the hope and that's why we need to live to our calling individually. Because in the fight for your life, what good are unused arrows? What good are unused arrows? What was Jehoash going to do with those extra arrows that he had? He might as well have thrown them on the ground because he was not going to do anything with them anyway. You mean to say, Brother Fulbert, I, I don't have much. I think the parable of the talents is proof that everybody is given talents of one way, shape, or form or another. I don't have that much. The thing is that Moses didn't think he had much. He had all these excuses ready and prepared how that God could not use him. And God said, what's that in your hand, Moses? Well, it's a shepherd's staff. Throw it on the ground. I'm not asking you to do what you can't do. Leave that to me. You just take what's in your hand, however small, however seemingly inconsequential, however much uh, uh, that you think it will not have an impact, you give it to me, you let it go and see what I can do with it. Hallelujah. Jehoash had the arrows in his hand that would have brought victory to the nation for generations to come. And yet they went unused. What God has called you to do in your life, in your purpose, he will empower you to do. It may not seem like much, but in his hands, it's a whole lot more than in your hands or in my hands. Hallelujah. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And he will not call you to defeat the enemy without giving you the weapons to do so. He is Jehovah Jireh. He will provide if we step out in faith and we strike the ground over and over and over again. Verse 20 of this passage from 2 Kings chapter 13 reads that then Elisha 
died and was buried. And I, I don't know if the words from verse 19 were actually Elisha's last words. Nothing more was recorded in scripture. But to see Jehoash live below his calling. He had the opportunity. He could have made the impact. He failed to do so. To see Jehoash live below his calling. To see Jehoash accept and settle for less than what God fully intended must have killed Elisha figuratively, if not literally. To see someone do so little with so much. So little with so much. Jeho Jehoash had been obedient. As we mentioned Sunday night, every step along the way, Elisha said to take the arrows, he took the bow and the arrows. Put your hand on the bow, he put his hand on the bow. Right? He said to shoot, Jehoash shot. He said, take the arrows, he took them. He said, strike the ground. He struck the ground one, two, three times. And then he no longer obeyed because he stopped. Jehoash was obedient to a point. He'd fulfilled partially what he had been told to do until he failed to continue to do what he already knew to do. And Jehoash ended up with less than what was necessary. All his previous obedience only left him to live below his calling. I heard a quote some years ago that 90% of knowing God's will is doing what you already know to do. He's given us a, his word, a whole Bible, 66 books. So I ask you this morning as we stand, in a few moments I'm going to open this altar, invite you to, to come forward to, to pray. And certainly it is, it is acceptable to remain in your seat to pray, to speak with God. But there are times also where we benefit from an act of faith and stepping out of where we are. Even if it's symbolic in a physical sense of moving from one place to another, it symbolizes moving from one place spiritually to another place spiritually. So I ask you this morning, what is God told you to do. Perhaps you've obeyed already God's instructions. God commands every man, woman, child to repent. Perhaps you've repented, perhaps you have yet to do so, to turn away from life, to say, God, help me. It's not just simply about managing sin, it's about turning away and crucifying that flesh and dying to your old self. Perhaps God's been dealing with you about being baptized and your sins being washed away in the glorious name of Jesus. 
but you've not yet fulfilled the obedience to that point. Perhaps God is calling you to receive the Holy Ghost because he wants and desires to dwell within you each and every day. Not to just come to a place of worship and, and feel that unction around you that other people enjoy, but every day when you wake up and when you leave for work and when you get back home and when, that He is abiding within you. He is calling you to receive the Holy Ghost. Perhaps He is lay, calling you to lay aside some weight or sin that's besetting you, a cycle of sin that remains unbroken despite your best efforts to try to overcome. Your best efforts will never overcome sin in your life. You have to submit it to God and let the work of the Holy Ghost do its work. Perhaps God is calling you to greater time of devotion, commitment to prayer and to the word, or getting out of your comfort zone to reach out to a world who so desperately needs you to live to your calling and beyond. Jesus said in John 8, 31, as we read at the outset, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. They already believed. They believed on him. But Jesus said, if you continue in my word, and the word there, continue, means to dwell, abide, even endure. Continue in my word. Then are ye my disciples indeed. Indeed, in action, right? By doing something that flows from our believing. It's not just a mental ascent because we are not simply called to be believers, but Jesus is calling us to be disciples. Disciples, and this is the vision of our pastor. This is the vision of New RQPC, that we not simply be believers, but that we be disciples, followers of Christ, who will deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, however difficult, however hard going it may be, hallelujah. But we're not gonna settle for less than the minimum. But when we are called to live to our calling, we are going to strike the ground once, twice, three times, four times, five, six, seven, eight, and whatever has to be done, we will do it because God is calling us to higher and higher heights. Paul told the Philippians that he pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. The upward, the ascending calling. God always has his calling go up, higher and higher, never downward. Oh God, as I call you to this altar this morning, pray with me if you would that God grant us the spirit of Elisha and not the spirit of Jehoash. God draws to greater heights individually and collectively. Let us not settle for what we think is or will be good enough. But God, we want to live to our calling and beyond the purpose that you have for us to impact others and to draw you to, to himself. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. God, the high calling, Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah. God, we don't want to settle for a low calling or for a mediocre calling, God, hallelujah. Lord, but you have equipped us, you have empowered us. God, you placed the arrows in our hands, Lord, to bring victory, Lord, and defeat to the enemy.